Do you consider yourself a high achiever? Smart, driven, highly successful? I am so excited to have you. My name is Julia Arndt and I'm the host of the Stress Podcast. I will help you develop your stress resilience the same way you've developed your workplace superpowers. Learn peak performance tools to thrive at work and in your personal life. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Stressed, the podcast to develop your next workplace superpower. I'm really excited to have our next uh, podcast interview guest in the show today, and it is Dr. David Clausen. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm really good. Thank you. How is your morning going? It's good. It's a little hectic, but uh, this, this feels good to kind of sit back and, and relax with you for a second. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's usually always the first question that I'm asking my podcast guests. Um, where are you? Where are you located? What time is it? And what have you been up to this morning? So give us a little insight into those kind of questions. Well, I'm in uh, Seattle, Washington. I'm um, at, at work uh, right now. So I started clinic uh, earlier this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I, got a, I got a little break to, to hang out with you. So that's good. Great. And you've seen already a few clients this morning as well? Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've had a reasonably full, full morning and, uh, you know, kind of uh, a mixture of uh, a couple procedures and, and, uh, and some people uh, with some pain conditions as, as well. So um, probably some of the stuff we're going to talk about, I actually got to apply this morning. So Nice. Um, tell us a little bit more about you and um, what you're doing, what you're specializing in. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and who you are. Yeah, so um, I practice physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, and um, that's a relatively small specialty. People don't know a lot about it. Um, we're called physiatrists, uh, sometimes confused with psychiatrists and podiatrists, but physiatrists uh, for physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, and our practice is, is pretty broad. Um, it, in, it involves, um, you know, kind of in the hospital taking care of, uh, things like strokes and spinal cord injuries and brain injuries and MS and ALS and, and, uh, um, and people coming out from COVID infections who have critical illness, myopathy and neuropathy and things like that. And then, um, the office practice uh, for most physiatrists is a mix of those diagnoses, but also involves a fair amount of musculoskeletal medicine. Um, so that, uh, is, you know, neck pain, back pain, peripheral joint injuries, um, things like that. So that's kind of the bulk of the practice. Um, I have, um, done, uh, uh, in my career, uh, getting a little long in the tooth here, um, a, a little bit of everything, um, uh, I, for most of my career, I was doing uh, an inpatient uh, practice as well as an outpatient practice. Um, currently, I am primarily doing outpatient work with a focus on uh, neck and back pain and complex spine care. Um, so I work really closely with our, our spine surgeons uh, mm -hmm. with that part of the practice. And then I, I, I used to do sports medicine. I'm boarded in sports medicine, but that's not an active part of what I'm doing right now. 
Great. Wow. That's amazing. And, um, you know, I am a stress management and peak performance coach. So I'm really excited to talk with you today and get a little bit more um, medical and uh, neuroscientific insights into how stress is affecting our mental and physical health. And I think that's actually where I would love to start with you. And um, you have a really cool YouTube channel um, called the, the Locker Room. Um, and you're explaining a lot of different things about um, how everything is connected. And I love that. And you have a, whiteboard, a huge whiteboard behind you with all different kinds of things and how they are connected. Um, and there's so many things we can talk about today, but um, how did you get really curious about kind of the interactions of all of this? Well, I, you know, I, I described kind of um, uh, the, my background in my practice. And so I've, uh, I've, I, in this especially, I've had an opportunity to see a lot, uh, a large spectrum of different disease processes and, um, and including, you know, mental health issues uh, and, uh, and, and, started to to you know kind of connect the dots a little bit about how how much we are uh, uh connected the mind body duality or we actually talk of mind body as being a you know a consolidation but even in the reference of calling it mind body we describe it in a duality and uh you know it started to dawn on me and i can't say how many years ago um that that was that was probably not uh you know a proper model that we are technically just one big chemical soup and there isn't a, a big separation um and so um you know i i've um gone down different pathways and rabbit holes just you know trying to explore that and most recently um actually prior to covid um but most recently i you know uh, i i got very interested in uh, uh cytokines and how they uh play a role in our body and I'd say that it was all stimulated probably 20 years ago by uh, a study I saw out of the NIH, and I'm forgetting the author right now, where he went and sampled um, the trigger points in muscles, so points where people feel particularly tender and uh, sometimes they're twitchy there, with a micro pipette the size of an acupuncture needle, and was able to demonstrate in our, in our muscle tissue uh, we had elevated levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines and depressed levels of serotonin. And I thought, whoa, that's really wild. Okay, and that sounds a lot like the brain. And um, and then, you know, kind of fall, pulling on those threads over time, I realized that, you know, what's going on not only in our fascial tissue and in our brain is the same that's going on in our gut. And, um, and that the chemical soups, all the same, the transmitters are the same. And I just, you know, I just kept pulling on those threads and, you know, we've kind of evolved this um, with a guy by the name of Stephen Porges, uh, who uh, is the granddaddy of the polyvagal theory. I don't know if you've come across that before, um, which um, he really developed in the 80s and then wrote about it in the 90s. And then with a good friend of mine, David Hanscom, who's a spine surgeon, we've been sort of developing this model of, uh, of illness. Um, initially, we had a huge focus just around pain and particularly neck and back pain. And then COVID hit and, uh, um, you know, the people are, are not dying from viral loads. They're dying from cytokine storms. And uh, we kind of went, oh my God, this is what we've been 
looking at in terms of pain models and degenerative disease in the body. And, uh, and we, you know, we've known for a long time that the shock syndromes in medicine that we die from, you know, in the ICUs, the ARDSs and the um, you know, septic shock, bacterial sepsis shock, and this uh, systemic um, in, uh, inflammatory response syndromes were mediated by the cytokines. But we just kind of, you know, said that's what it is. We kind of ignored them. We didn't really, you know, um, look at them all that uh, that closely. So. Um, the, that, that, that's sort of been, you know, the history of the last few months. Uh, it, it, we've taken sort of our years of curiosity about what these cytokines are doing. And, uh, and then with this notion that people with COVID infections are actually dying from cytokine load or cytokine storms, started, you know, pulling on, on a lot of those threads. And, and uh, to be honest, I, you know, things got really slow here uh, because we, we stopped doing uh, a lot of outpatient work, um, getting ready for the COVID crisis. So I was sitting at home twiddling my thumbs and I started going to the whiteboard in the locker room and, and essentially um, trying to um, put together a rationale for a better way to treat uh, COVID and the ARDS, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, shock syndrome, um, uh, which we're so poor at treating. And, uh, and that's a lot of what's, you know, on the, on those uh, sort of chalk docs on the whiteboard. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about cytokines and what they yeah. actually do and what they're responsible for? Yeah, they're, they're really fascinating. So, um, you know, they, they um, from a, a, a phylogenetic standpoint, from an evolutionary standpoint, they well precede us. So you can find evidence for cytokines in, uh, in, uh, pre-vertebrate or before we had, you know, uh, sort of skeletons and, and neurologic wiring, you can find evidence for uh, uh, cytokines that far back. And, um, and so what we feel like in looking at what they do, um, uh, we've, we've sort of just discovered how um, ever present they are in our bodies. So the, the cytokines are, you know, maybe 150 to 200 uh, amino acid sequences. So they're, they're, they're peptides and they do a ton of stuff in our body. Uh, and there are a lot of them. So the categories that we talk about are the interferons uh, and then the interleukins, which are the ones that tend to be really pro-inflammatory and get us in a lot of trouble uh, with COVID and cytokine storms. And I should say that interleukins are very important in viral immunity. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, the interferons are very important viral immunity. Um, the, um, the interleukins um, are important in uh, 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 inflammation. And then you have uh, chemokines, uh, which uh, kind of facilitate white cell migration to go chew up dead tissue or bacteria or viruses. And then you have uh, the tumor necrosing factor family. So it's this big family of different uh, uh, peptide um, transmitters in our bodies that we probably are just getting to the tip of the iceberg. Um, but the, the ones that we've been most fascinated with are really the interleukins, which um, send out signals that um, tell white cells to migrate to certain parts of the body to, for immunity, but primarily their role in inflammation. 
So these things, they got their names, cytokines, um, cyto meaning cell and kind, you know, like kinesiology movement. So, so they were identified sort of in the world of immunology as, uh, uh, as sort of the helper chemicals for white cells to get them to go attack uh, a bacteria or a virus. And, um, and that's kind of the inflammatory response. Um, and so then we talk about pro-inflammatory cytokines which are the ones that um, uh, create the inflammation in our body that can cause early degeneration or, or um, you know, the, the ARDS syndrome of COVID. But there are also anti-inflammatory cytokines uh, and they promote um, a decreasing inflammation uh, and they actually um, tend to enhance immunity over time. So. Um, so there's those two components of it. But as we started digging into this, we actually discovered um, they also work as, as uh, uh, transmitters in other parts of the body. So they also work as neurotransmitters in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. And then you dig in a little further and you realize that they are directly engaging in metabolic processes. They directly engage in uh, you know, the burning of glucose and the choosing of glucose as a fuel versus the burning of ketones and choosing ketones as a fuel, depending on what state our, our body is in. They even, um, they affect our lipid profiles, you know, our cholesterol profiles as well. So their, their role is, you, you start going, oh my God, you know, they're, they're doing all this different stuff in the body. And then when you start to apply um, you know, this, this fellow I was talking about earlier, Stephen Forges, um, uh, his uh, polyvagal theory that describes essentially the body in terms of whether we perceive we're uh, in threat or in stress and the different um, modes we operate in. And then you start um, using that story and looking at what the cytokines are doing. You realize that there's a really great story to tell that the pro-inflammatory cytokines come out when we're when we are perceived we're under threat and attack, or or if we actually are under threat and attack. Mm -hmm. And the anti-inflammatory cytokines come out when we perceive we're in safety or we are actually in safety. So it's really cool. So you take you take these you know these chemicals that are you know uh, being distributed all through our our body. And you know all the complexity of, of of tracking metabolic pathways and immune pathways and neurotransmission and all that, and you start reducing it down, and and it just comes down to whether we're living our lives in um, uh, you know I, I, I say real predicted um, uh, or or you know perceived threat even imagined threat, or if we're, if we're living our lives in safety. Um, so you can just take all of this, you know, wild biochemistry and just reduce it down to, are we in threat or are we in safety? And that really determines our health, which is super cool. And I think it's really neat in the world today because what we're seeing um, out there, and you can interrupt me, by the way. Um, but I, think um, well, I have a million questions, but I'll, I'll let you finish this thought. And yeah. then I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, <laughs> these cytokines affect our physical sense of wellness, but every mental health uh, 
diagnosis, every, uh, every diagnosis of mental illness or disease, you can find that it is associated with pro-inflammatory cytokines. So that means that anybody who has any uh, mental health diagnosis, the root cause is somehow they, they are either in threat or they perceive they're in threat uh, and attack. And, you know, and then you can explain all the different diagnoses by you know, tracing them down, downstream from that fundamental place. But the one thing I just want to throw out there is, um, you know, I'm I kind of always saying that it, it makes uh, neurology, immunology, endocrinology, and, you know, essentially uh, metabolic uh, structures, um, psychology or psychiatry, it, it means that they're all the same system. They, they are not uh, different in any way. But it also means that our sociologic system is also part of us. So, you know, we live in the world today where, um, you know, we are, I'm, I'm trying to be politically correct here. I'm trying to be delicate here, but, but there are things in the world, there are people in the world who, um, uh, who like to go around and, and uh, um, put threat on other people. Um, and that is so destructive and causes, you know, so much, uh, um, social illness, uh, mental illness, and physical illness in doing that, that it's something we have to be aware of, is that there are direct physiologic consequences and direct, um, you know, social and medical consequences to perpetuating threat in the world. Uh, and so uh, that that's also a very kind of root fundamental of all of this, is that we have to, you know, we have to recognize that, that uh, we, we may be um, you know, harming people just in our, our toxic behavior and relationships with people. So prejudice, um, you know, yeah. sociopathic, toxic narcissism, all those things uh, really uh, uh, affect our social uh, structures as well as our own internal physical and mental well-being. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you say that. And I love how like you're breaking it down. I think it's really helpful. So one of the things um, that was new information for me that I read a couple of months ago and that really helped me understand why we are more in acute stress was the whole interplay obviously between, you already said, it, are we in the threat state or are we in the relaxation state? But then I read somewhere in an article that even if the sympathetic nervous system is activated and we think it's like fight or flight, it doesn't actually have to be an emergency situation. So even if it is a non-emergency situation, like for example, we're just working all day long and we're just we're just using energy, we are in the sympathetic state. And that really helped me actually to understand, okay, because I was always trying to explain this to my clients, um, and you know, clients were always like, well, but I'm not in the emergent, I'm not in a fight or flight emergency state. And I'm like, no, no, no but you are even in that state when you're exerting energy or if it is a threat, right? So even if it's negative thoughts or watching the news all day long and there's all this fear that is instilled, right? We are in the sympathetic state and it has an impact on our stress levels over the course of the day. Can you explain that maybe more or why that? Well, yeah, um, so, well, the, the way I was looking at it, so our sympathetic nervous system, uh, it, you know, is activated in, in, uh, 
in stressful situations. Now, some of those stressful situations are, you know, going out and, and, you know, getting a great workout, going for a hard run, something like that. And the sympathetics are, are activated to support that, uh, that state. But when we're doing that, uh, we aren't under threat typically. We're doing it out of, you know, sort of free choice and enjoyment. We know it's going to make us feel better. Um, but it does require a, a level of activation of the sympathetic nervous system and the, and the choices being made, you know, to increase our heart rate, our respiratory rate, our, our, our sweating, uh, you know, choosing to mobilize uh, 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 um, resources for glucose to, uh, you know, to, to feed the, the workout. Um, which is um, very different than uh, the sympathetic response when we're under under threat. Some of the some of the the, the symptoms are are very much parallel to each other, um, but um, it, when you're under a, an attack, there's definitely a different sensation in your body, and uh, there's a different effect on on the body over time. If that kind of sympathetic activation goes on too long, um, so bursts of uh, increased sympathetic tone in our body, uh, are, you know, give us a good training effect. But chronic stress or chronic threat uh, has a lot of uh, you know side effects and and uh, deterioration in us that are um, you know you can actually trace it a little better through the cytokine system than the traditional model that we all uh, grew up with, right? So, um, we, I, you know, the how I was trained, and it hasn't changed much at, at all since I was trained, is, you know, you had your parasympathetic system, you know, which was, you know, kind of your relaxed system, and then you had your sympathetic system, which was, you know, more related to uh, activity and fight and flight and that type of thing. And the whole thing was sort of modeled around this uh, hypothalamic to pituitary to adrenal access by which you stimulated your adrenal cortex to release cortisol, which helps to mobilize fuel for the activity. And if things are kind of tense, you release noradrenaline and uh, adrenaline uh, from uh, the adrenal uh, medulla. And that was kind of the model we all grew up with, but it failed to explain the spectrum of, uh, of uh, stress and, and how our body reacts to it. And I think that's where this, these cytokine systems are so interesting because they start to really explain, um, you know, why we feel so much different if our sympathetics are activated uh, under, you know, good or safe stress versus under threat stress. Um, so, yeah. And, and definitely, um, threats come in so many different uh, ways or, or, or have so many different vectors to get us. And I think that's what's also really interesting in this, looking at it. You know, you start with the physical threats, which, you know, COVID's a virus. So you've got the viruses, you've got the bacteria, you, you have uh, parasites. And then, you know, you also have lions and tigers and bears. And those were our threats, you know, prehistorically, right? Those, they were physical threats. And other people, other tribes were threats to us as well. But, um, you know, in modern society, those physical threats have really been more or less corralled. I mean, COVID's a little bit of a, a wild card, but, you know, we have antibiotics for bacteria and, you know, we managed to stay away from lions, tigers, and bears. And physical assaults are not 
that common anymore. So, so our threats in, 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 mo in the modern world tend to be what I classify more as spiritual threats, uh, um, you know, social, uh, social threats. Interestingly, just having been excluded from a social group, if somebody is somehow has that, I think they, you know, start calling it moral injury or um, uh, uh, that, that uh, excluding somebody from a, a, a group, they've actually measured that their pro-inflammatory cytokine interleukin-6 will go up from social exclusion wildly, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so that spiritual threats can be also financial, you know, living, uh, living in poverty and also uh, discrimination and injustice, they all fall under that category. And those things all increase our threat levels, increase our, you know, traditional um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal uh, kind of threat uh, stress hormones, but also incre increase our pro-inflammatory um, uh, hormones. So people who live under spiritual threat uh, have an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines and increases typically in, in cortisol, at least if they're existing in a in a fight or flight state, not going all the way down into sort of freezy, fainty depression state. Um, uh, um, and, and that does a lot to explain why, uh, you know, uh, the American black population has a higher incidence of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, kidney disease, um, uh, anxiety and depression is those 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 social or spiritual uh, threats that they're living with all the time. Um, and there are other populations in the United States that experience that as well. And then there's the uh, the in the shadows of the brain, which is really fascinating. Um, you have um, also this sort of constant poking on the threat button. I would call it the amygdala. amygdala two of them in the brain as our threat buttons that um, that the, below the, the surface of the brain, sort of in the shadows of the brain, where we house a lot of stuff. We have predictive codes that are constantly sensing in our environment, whether we're under threat or safety, that's in every animal. Um, that is partly instinct, but partly learned predictive codes based on past threat and safety. Um, we, we also have traumatic memories that get housed down there. So um, children who have had uh, experienced abuse, adverse childhood events, have a much higher risk of uh, asthma and autoimmune diseases and things like that. We know that uh, women who experienced uh, incest have uh, a much elevated risk of getting lupus. I mean, that's, it's, that's wild to me to think about that, you know, chronically suppressed historical um, uh, events or event that can then poke out as an autoimmune disease when somebody's in their 20s or 30s um, because it's harbored down in the shadows of our brain. And then the other thing that, you know, that, that we all do, but docs do it as well. And so we're victims to uh, some of these uh, kind of disease processes, and you can even see it in physician suicide rates are above the average, um, is we're, a mass, we're masters at repression, right? Negative thoughts, we try to, you know, suppress them, compartmentalize them, and, and repressed emotions, instead of dealing with them, we stuff them away, uh, and they come back to haunt us, they come back to poke at us, 
And so they activate the threat stress system and tend to make uh, people who are, you know, really big repressives have problems with that. The Stoics have, uh, can have a lot of uh, uh, sort of uh, threat stress, cytokine, stress system mediated uh, mental illness and disease in, the, in, in their body. So you can then extrapolate that to I'm sitting at work. You know, uh, I'm stuck at a computer, maybe, maybe somebody's at a job they don't like, maybe they have a boss who, you know, they're afraid of, and, um, and everything in their entire being is telling them, you know, that I, I need to move, right? We were made to move. So everything in their entire being is saying, you know, you need to get up and move, particularly if you're in fight or flight, those are mobilization responses. And everything we, everything in our body, if we feel threatened and fight or flight, is telling us to move. But you're sitting there at your computer, just trying to get through the day, and <laughs> you can't move. And so now you have to, you have to repress all that energy and repress all those negative thoughts mm -hmm. and repress the anxiety or the anger, and it just starts to build. And pretty soon your health starts to deteriorate. And it's not a lion, tiger, or bear, but it's 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 absolutely you know neurobiology, neurophysiologic responses that are occurring in our body uh, as we you know fight to be uh, sort of stoic and getting through our our day. Um, but anyway, that's no, that's, that's interesting. The, that you explain because yeah. so what I'm working with, and a lot of people that will listen right now are people that are in the workplace, right? And People in the workplace have a lot of stress, right? Either perceived stress or actual stress, right? That there's definitely that that balance. And um, one of the questions that I had was, why are people addicted to work and so successful in their careers while having a poor lifestyle? Can you explain that to us on a like more medical Bi biochemical? Wow, that's a really good one. I'm, I'm not sure I've worked that one through. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so I'm going to have to do do a little bit of uh, ad living. I, I, you know, my overall sense is the is is the cultural contagions uh, uh, that we get. Um, these are, you know, cognitive contagions, not really a virus about what it means to be a good and successful human being. Um, are major drivers in our behavior. So I think particularly in, uh, you know, the, the, the United States, we have this um, uh, cultural uh, uh, contagion, this, this thought um, that uh, we don't have value if we're not busy working, accomplishing all the time. So there's that, there's that piece of, uh, of the culture that, that can become kind of toxic. And, and there's, you know, been some great work over the years, particularly by the Ernest Becker scholars on, uh, on uh, existential angst. Uh, and, um, and we, we worry m probably more about, we, we rep repress the fact that, you know, we may be the only species that's conscious of the fact that um, at the end of the road, we may be annihilated potentially. I mean, I'd like to hope there's a, better spiritual explanation, but that's always a possibility. Um, but they actually have kind of demonstrated that not only that, that anxiety over an, uh, our physical death, but we have extreme anxiety over a social death. 
we are, and this is Stephen Porges's work as well, we are very pro-social animals. Um, and so we need to be connected. And so we want to do the things that allow us to, you know, be part of the social norm. And I think our, 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 our you know, our, our cultural construct of, of work is, is uh, a little different in the United States and it drives us um, to sort of workism, you know. Um, so I think, that's a, I think that's a piece of it. I think the other thing is, you know, as predictive animals, we recognize that, uh, you know, uh, running out of resources is a bad thing for us for our survival. So running out of money is a bad thing for us. Um, and so I think that that idea of, uh, of not being secure in the world because, you know, you, you don't have enough money. I think that is, uh, that's a real driver to that equation. And I think there's another factor in it um, is that um, um, this one's a little harder to explain, but we've come to a, almost ex accept in our physiology that being uh, kind of in, in flight mode is normal. Um, and, and we have a really hard time getting to a point where we're truly relaxed. And so I think what, um, uh, what we, we sometimes do is when we are left alone to sit with ourselves and, and we actually start to feel our anxiety, that anxiety propels us to get up and move instead of kind of riding through it and finding that point of, of uh, relaxation. Uh, it's just easier to get up and move and to go back to habitual things. So I think in that regard, um, you know, when you feel anxious, you're not really sure what to do in the world. Your self-esteem is wound up in who you are at work. You like the money. It is this, the, the, the way we can, there's two ways we can kind of get out of the uncomfortableness of anxiety. And uh, 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 one of them is to, you know, is to go down the energetic, the, ener the, the you know, the, what's that bunny, energy bunny route, where um, we go seek out uh, activities that will give us a little dopamine hit and make us um, feel a little calmer for a while. You know, kind of our pleasure reward system makes us feel better, almost like an addiction, right? Like a cocaine, uh, a pleasure reward response. Um, so we can gravitate to, to that easier than we can kind of sit with our own emotions and process them and actually work to get in a relaxation mode. So, you know, we, you know, that, and that's where, um, you know, you have the, the things like, instead of running back to work um, and doing more, doing more, doing more, which um, can eventually cause some, you know, physiologic deterioration, you know, uh, doing some yoga, doing some breath work, doing some meditative work, doing expressive stuff, expressive arts, expressive writing, um, expressive movement, you know, those types of things are the direction that we need to go in to rebalance our life. And in that expressive world is play. And, you know, this, this is something that just within the last year, you know, when I started processing the, you know, that other half of who we are, it's not always achieving and doing and earning more money. There's this other half, sort of this creative, playful, expressive part of us that's so essential to being balanced. You know, I, I read an article on play and I said, God, that is awesome. And then I sat back and I go, 
I have no idea how to play. I don't know. I mean, I remember it as a child. I just don't really kind of know what it is anymore. And that's a little troubling. So, um, so I think anyway, there's, 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 there's a lot of energy that pushes us, pushes us to workism. Um, but we need to look at it, um, and in, you know, under the microscope of, of threat, uh, and stress and versus um, feeling safe and relaxed and calm. And, and, and also, you know, it can get an addictive quality to it. Uh, it's you're anxious. You don't know what to do. I know if I go to work, I distract myself from a while for a while. I get reinforced for being at work. Everybody goes, Oh, you're so awesome. You work so hard. And I get a little bit more money because I get, you know, a promotion or a bonus and that feels really good. And then we're kind of going down that addiction road. Uh, with work and that's that can be problematic over the long run yeah and you also get endorphins every time you accomplish a task right so you are actually feeding this like oh i'm doing something i'm i'm feeling good right it's, i always say it's similar to exercise except that that's kind of the bad <laughs> the bad reward system if you're doing it chronically right if you're doing it too right, much. right. you're getting you're getting you're giving yourself little squirts of yeah of all these reinforcing chemicals mm -hmm. but you know you but but if that is how you're finding you know your peace in the world those little squirts of endorphins endocannabinoids dopamine whatever they aren't necessarily long lasting and so then you fall back into that state of you know a little bit of anxiety and then you got to go back and, and get them again mm -hmm. versus saying you know whoa slow down let's divert and let's do something creative and expressive and relax you know kind of get into the breed feed uh, digest and rest mode versus just staying in that um you know kind of hyperkinetic, constantly moving constantly accomplishing looking for heroic tasks to do in the world that um that they do they do make us feel better, but it's just, you know, it's not that much different than, than uh, smoking a cigarette or having some cocaine. It makes us feel better for a while. We eventually have to come back down and then decide are we going to do it again, um, you know, or are we going to try this other half of our physiology on? And I would argue we need the balance. I mean, it's really fun, you know, to get up and go to work and be energized and be excited and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and that's all good, but it's still just, it's, it's half of our physiology. We've got this other half that's worth paying attention to, to be whole. So, yeah, I think that explains workaholism really, really well. And so what I wanted to ask you, ah, yes, is the, do you feel like people are already aware enough of this? Like, do you feel like there's already enough people out there that talk about this like the stress response and why we are maybe getting sick physically and mentally. I, you know, when you're looking at the numbers, it's really clear that stress is actually also a global pandemic, <laughs> but nobody talks about it or shuts down schools. Right. Um, yeah. where do you see, like, where are we at this point and where do we need to get to? Yeah. I, you know, um, no, I, I, I don't, Think, I think we talk about it a lot, and 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 and, and but we don't understand it well. I mean, I, I mean, people people have a sense they're stressed. I mean, I I get that in general, and obviously, seeing you know uh, patients when they're sick, there's a bias towards being anxious and feeling stressed, 
and not well. But um, but I I think there is, you know, there's quite a bit of dialogue around it. Um, but the understanding of it, I I think, is uh, incomplete, and uh, the ability um, the you know to um, take it forward to understand the cost uh, of this. I mean, just on a just on a financial level, the costs of chronic threat stress in the world are enormous, and I feel like COVID really pointed this out to us you know the people who are um, uh, under the most threat stress in the world are the ones who are having the worst time with COVID and my argument has been is because their baseline pro-inflammatory cytokines are so high they're so close to the threshold of crash and burn into a shock syndrome when they get COVID you know that that um, they have no they have no margin uh, for more stress. And, and so, you know, if everybody was re reacting to COVID like uh, uh, a physically and mentally healthy 20-year-old, you know, it's like a common cold or it might just pass them by, mm -hmm. COVID wouldn't be a big deal. And the world wouldn't be shut down. Mm -hmm. And um, we wouldn't be having social and, and uh, uh, financial sort of uh, catastrophe on top of it. So there, you know, there, and that's not even to mention just the day-to-day -day cost of providing medical care due to this phenomenon. I mean, we could probably, you know, safely say uh, uh, that 75% of illness, physical illness and disease in the world is related to a chronic threat stress response. We, we, could, we could very much safely say the chronic uh, diseases are, and we can clearly say 100% of all mental illness and, and disease is related to uh, a chronic threat stress response, um, and uh, including addictions in that. Uh, and, uh, and so just within the, the medical world itself, between physical illness and disease and mental illness and disease and addiction, and this includes, you know, obesity and type 2 diabetes are directly related to this, which they have their entire sequelae. You know, you're probably talking about 75% um, or more of all of our medical costs are related to this um, threat stress response and, and the uh, chronic um, circulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So um, the idea uh, of treating people poorly, number one, uh, is really terrible, um, but the idea that we should be working and productive all the time, otherwise, you know, we're we're not worthwhile, um, it is probably more costly than if we actually started to dig into this. And I think the really cool thing about this, and none of this research is, you know, is is really out there. When you dig into it, you can find a lot of science on this sort of theory. But the idea now that we could potentially just measure, um, probably the most pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine is interleukin-6. Um, and uh, we have cytokine panels. But the idea that, you know, when we're getting our, our uh, cholesterol level checked and our C-reactive protein checked and uh, our, our blood counts and our chemistries, that we were to grab an interleukin-6, and that could be a barometer of how much uh, threat we're under, and if it's elevated, then we need to dig.
but it can't just be superficial digging. We can't just say, you know, oh, well, of course you're, you're obese, so it's going to be elevated. We have to dig a little further and say, what are all the things that are, feel threatening to you in the world? And, and the, uh, the emotional processing um, uh, of a lifetime, uh, you know, is part of the solution. But, you know, simply getting people to feel safe in the world, safe in their environment, fully seen, um, getting rid of all the insecurities, the social insecurities, the financial insecurities, those types of things are, uh, are, are a part of um, treating this phenomenon. But we have to create that dialogue and we have to create a new sort of, um, you know, what I would say, you know, the, 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 the cognitive contagion, not a, not a virus, but the thought that um, that you know excessive work and and uh, um, and not finding time to relax or the thought that the other thought that out, is out there is that you know competition is good. Yeah, I don't know. Competition is good and you know for certain resource allocation and in markets, but um, we by nature are. Are, are, are fundamentally much more about adaptation and cooperation than we are about competition and conflict. So there's a lot of things that we, that we have to change. Um, you know, and the United States is gonna have to uh, honestly start at the top. I mean, we have a problem with um, threatening people um, and uh, demeaning people and bullying people. And, uh, and that is going to make us, uh, sicker it's going to put us at greater risk in every pandemic that comes um, but just in our baseline level of uh, dysfunction and illness we're going to be a sicker population uh, and it's going to cost us um, and we you know we're, we're trying to bankrupt ourselves with our our, our, our illness care system we don't have a, a, a health care system in the United States. So there's a lot of work to be done, I guess I should say, yeah. um, to make this all better. Yeah. For sure. I, I totally agree. Um, I, I would still love to talk about what the individuals still can do in this, right? Because yes, there's of course a lot of things that have to change um, from a higher level. But then if we are just sitting around <laughs> waiting for the other people to do things, I think that's also not really helpful, right? So what I, for example, always say is that, you know, people need to choose what they can control and what is outside of their control. And they need to focus on what is in their control in order to kind of work with the thoughts as well and be like, okay, instead of staying in that stress state um, and that fear state, moving into more the safe state of like, okay, all of these things are going on and I recognize it. And maybe I have that initial reaction, physical, and physiological reaction, right, to stress. But then I, I can actually, with awareness and relaxation, shift back into the safe state and decide on what I can control. Um, from a cytokine perspective, how can I, so, you know, we've talked a lot about cytokines today. So if people don't, are not so familiar with that, is there something that they can do on, a, on that level that they can really influence the more, I guess, the anti-inflammatory cytokines? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so there are, there, there's a, a lot of things you can do. I think, you know, if we, if we start with just an uh, assessment of our own, uh, um, you know, sort of 
now we're talking about cortical functions and our thinking functions and and sort of the you know cognitive behavioral therapy but i would say for everybody they they should uh, fundamentally look at the constructs that they're living with with the 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 reasons that they you know value certain things and don't value other things and and uh and and whether or not uh, you know that's really an accurate assessment or if it's just something that they have uh, acquired a, you know a, a, a cognitive um uh as i say contagion but a, a, a cognitive process that leads them to a certain behavior that may not you know may not be accurate or true or necessary so i i think people really need to look at the wood the woods the shoulds and have tos needs to in their world and decide what are those are just you know are just uh constructs that that, that somehow we we put upon ourselves that don't have much value anymore so that's that's top up kind of stuff now let's go all the way down to bottom of the brainstem stuff and work up so there's a lot of good information, particularly Stephen Porges' stuff that I keep talking about on polyvagal theory and how we can modulate um, our stress uh, system uh, through things uh, like that increase our, what's called our vagal tone or our breed, feed, digest and rest tone, our relaxation tone. Uh, and breath work is the one most of our brainstem stuff is pretty automatic, autonomic kind of stuff, but we do have control over our breath. So doing um, uh, controlled breath work can actually um, shift us out of that threat mode and into that safety mode, increase our, our, our uh, vagal tone. So um, really like that kind of stuff a lot. So now we went top, now we went, now, now we kind of talked a little bit about the brainstemmy stuff and, and you can, incorporate you know uh, uh, your meditation practice and your yoga practice and your breath work into that brain stemmy stuff and then there's kind of this middle stuff of um of um the shadows of the brain and and particularly our repressions our repressions are really potent and that's where the expressive writing uh, expressive movement expressive art playing if you think of repression and suppression and the op and oppression, I suppose, in terms of, you know, uh, black America as well, but the opposite of, of that is expression. And so if we can just do things in our lives that incorporate expressive activities, it really helps us to incorporate um, uh, and integrate all of those past negative emotions. And, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I can't explain it, but it does work. Um, David Hanscom, a spine surgeon, uh, has documented the benefits of, of expressive writing over and over. Uh, it was a theory um, promoted by a Dr. Penny Baker a while ago, and he has some good studies on expressive writing. James Gordon uh, uh, is uh, wrote the book that came out last fall, The Transformation, and he talks a lot about the importance of expression and play. So, um, so that that that's something that everybody can do. It's it's easy to do. And then, um, as I said, we are a pro-social species, so we we need to figure out in this weirdo time how to connect. Um, with with people um but you know it that's really important to us we don't survive very long physically or spiritually without connection uh if you put us out in the in the forest by ourselves we none of us survive very well alone 
So we need that connection and that connection, including, you know, um, the, but it's got to be a safe social connection. Uh, you know, threatening social connections are different, but you've got to have those really safe social connections and they're really important to us. They increase our vagal tone, our safety tone. They help us to throw out oxytocin, which is an amazing hormone in everything that it can do. Um, and there's been a lot written by a woman by the name of Sue Carter on oxytocin uh, and all the things that can do healing tissues and um, pushing up vagal tone, relaxing us, you know, increasing our relaxation response. So love hormone, all of that. So I would say those, those are the kind of the big things the the, the cognitive shifts, uh, the brainstem work that actually helps get us into relaxation, expressive work and social connection. And that's going to increase our pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are also our catabolic cytokines and feel-good cytokines, and depressing our, our uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are catabolic, make us feel terrible. And I'd say that the last thing kind of in there is recognizing for us to really feel um, safe in the world, um, you know, people talk about staying in your lane type stuff. Other people talk about boundaries, but we have to become really good at establishing our boundaries and then understanding we can't go uh, crashing into somebody else's lane. And when we create those nice boundaries around us, even though we're pro-social and we need those social connections, we also need a little bit of boundary around us. Uh, and everybody needs it. So we have to, if we need it, then we got to respect somebody else's boundaries. And then within our own boundaries, we have a certain sense of freedom to be our uh, authentic self. And that also is really important. And that gets messy with social relationships and, and establishing, you know, those, those boundaries is really, really challenging. But I think that's the kind of work that we could start even with kids, you know, in preschool and just, you know, this, this concept of, you you get to respect yourself yeah. um that goes a long way that's i'm smiling that you're saying that because um i have a group coaching group and this month's focus is how to set boundaries <laughs> so okay, I, I just i'd love that you just talked about boundaries and how we don't really learn that right we don't really learn how to say no or that it is okay to say no so and um, i love that you're bringing that up as well in order to make sure that we're staying healthy so that's actually a really beautiful kind of wrap up. And um, you've already mentioned a couple of really amazing books. Um, what do you think about um, routines and habits? Maybe as the, one of the last questions. And um, how do you, have, have, what have you created in your life to make it, bring it a little bit more personal to, to integrate all of these things into your life through routines? Yeah, well, you know, this is where, you know, um, I always look at myself, my kids, you know, laugh at me. I, I, I always feel like um, I've acquired a lot of knowledge and, uh, and, um, uh, and, and yet haven't, uh, you know, achieved wisdom. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, for, for me personally, um, you know, the, I, I would say I, there was a, a point in my life where, you know, and I was a little bit kind of studying Buddhism and that type of thing, where I, I, I actually made the conscious choice to to sort of 
deconstruct all of my constructs and just say, you know, they, they may be wrong. And I still, you know, have to practice that even when we're developing cytokine theory and things like that is, you know, is having that flexibility to, you know, not, not cling to too many things too tight. So that, that's kind of a, a mindset for me. Um, you know, I, um, I uh, started doing, you know, uh, more creative stuff when I realized I was not clear of how to play. So, you know, um, kind of picked up a little bit of music and, and do a little watercoloring and, and do some expressive writing and things like that when particularly, and the, the point is not necessarily just do it when you have time, is to do it when you feel like you're stressed. And, uh, and, I, and I do find it so therapeutic. You go into a zone. It's really very interesting how you can kind of kind of get there that way. Um, so I've, I've been doing, you know, cognitive shift. I do um, uh, yoga and breath work. I'm not a great meditator, and I don't try to force myself to do that. Um, I will take, you know, long walks. I believe in nature deficit disorder, so I, I uh, seek out parks and trees and forests and, and get out and I find that very meditative uh, for me. And then, you know, to be honest, one of the greatest things for me in this COVID time is, the, is this uh, group of people that, you know, we get together and Zoom on Wednesday nights and, and, uh, and we're constantly, you know, texting and sending information back and forth. And, um, and uh, it, it, most of it is, is around um, this stuff and all the cool stuff. And so we've got people from all over the United States that get on and just sharing ideas and, and, keep, and, and staying, you know, staying uh, connected that way. So, um, you know, I try, to, I try to incorporate all of these things into my life and I'm pretty, pretty disciplined about almost every day getting some form of exercise, whether it's, you know, um, uh, walking or actually a strength kind of program or yoga, um, you know, I love to swim, things like that, but you can't get in a pool now. So um, yeah, I just, I try to look at each little spot, you know, what can I do with my brainstem to chill me out a little bit? What can I, you know, what can I do cognitively to shift things, uh, stay socially connected, and then deal with my repressions, which is the, you know, enormous one. I will tell you, I know you got to go, but you know, uh, I was going through counseling years ago and I'd go in and they'd ask me how I felt. And I was like, I felt maybe a little stressed. And I, I really did suffer from this inability to identify emotions uh, after many years of practicing as a physician and constant repression um, to actually um, uh, not only be able to feel your emotions, but to identify them. That became re a really interesting process. And, uh, and, and it was, it, it impacted me, you know, pretty profoundly that I was having a hard time, you know, I could feel things in my body. Um, I could sense maybe I was stressed, um, but I really hadn't, uh, I, I was unable to identify whether it was, you know, fear or anxiety or whether I was angry or whether I was sad. They were not really available to me. And I would, and, and my counselor pointed that out and I was like, you know, that, that's really interesting. And so now that's the other thing I do is I do spend time to, when I'm feeling something, 
to find a quiet moment and actually go, what is it? And, and I'm still working on it. I'm a work in progress. So. Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really powerful to identify feelings and emotions. Um, and I feel like just the sheer awareness, right. Of like finding that word or that name to it in a, in a quiet moment almost helps you relax again. Right. Because you're like, yeah. Oh, this is what it is. I feel like it's so like I, I'm doing breath work sometimes with clients or sometimes with, with groups because it's so powerful to just, okay, identify where it's tight and then find a word or an emotion or a feeling that, that explains it and then breathe into it. And all of a sudden, you know, 30 seconds later, people feel better. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. well, because they're so unconscious and you're suppressing that feeling that all the time, the conscious it's, yeah, you can actually identify it and let it go, right? Yeah. Oh, super simple, but yet so powerful. Yeah, I, yeah and, and we're so bad at, well, you know, me anyway, so bad at identifying the, those things, which is, isn't particularly helpful. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon to be sort of trained in repression as a physician in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and, and uh, that's not particularly helpful uh, clinically you know, when we are detached from our own emotions. So, yeah, it's very powerful. Really powerful. This was such a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for your time. Um, how can people find out more about you or get in touch with you if they are interested to do so? Um, yeah, so my, my practice is in, in Seattle, Washington, and, uh, you know, I'm at Swedish Hospital there, um, and that's probably the, the best way to, to, uh, to track me down. Um, um, you know, they'll, we're in, in the process of putting some, some papers together to explain this better, uh, um, but right now they're kind of crude on the, on the whiteboard, and and that is almost an exercise in, in trying to get it right before we put anything to, you know, to print. So hopefully in the future, we'll have a, a little bit more out there uh, regarding this. But I would encourage people to, you know, if they have neck or back pain or suffering anyway, um, David Hanscom's back in control. Stephen Porges's polyvagal uh, theory is powerful. Um, uh, James Gordon, uh, the transformation. John Sarno, The Divided Mind. Um, those are all, um, they aren't in the weeds with the cytokines in any of those. So this is new stuff, the way we're organizing that. And so I don't have anything uh, really available yet uh, for people um, in print. So. Not in print, but you do have your YouTube channel, which is, I think, under David Clausen. Is it under your name, the channel? Yeah, David Clausen. I put it under the locker room, and I won't go into that story, but um, it, it is, um, it's really cool. I recommend people to watch it um, if you're interested to learn more and more about the biomedical and biochemical um, interactions of stress. So, thank you so so much. Again, I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate the insight. This has been a really wonderful, super insightful conversation, and um, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. For you, you, you too. Pleasure. Pleasure. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.